remain standing for our epistle lesson, again from Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. I'll be reading this time from the translation in the handout. Listen carefully to God's infallible word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Nevertheless, I would not have known sin except through the law. Indeed, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all manner of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. And I found that the commandment which was meant to bring life resulted in my death. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, sin killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. O Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts please you this day as we consider Paul's words to the Romans. We pray that we would be pleasing in your sight as your spirit produces in us faith and repentance and renewed submission to you and your word. And so we ask that you would accomplish that in us for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. This is a continuation of the sermon two weeks ago, part two, you could say, of the sermon that, that two weeks ago where, where we started but didn't get out of, uh, we, we didn't get past verse seven. Uh, first part of this is going to be a little bit of review so we can hit some highlights of, of where we've already been, and then we'll move on. Romans 7 is all about the law. The word law shows up nearly two dozen times. I think it's 23 times in this chapter, and six of those times are in today's passage, verses 7 to 12. Now, up in verse 5, so the, the, the passage before this one, Paul restated his belief that sin is aroused by the law. He said it before, he's going to say it again, that the law stirs up sinful passions rather than quelling them. This was, to say this, was offensive to many Jews. They were committed, remember, to the idea that God gave them the law as a means of suppressing sin and becoming righteous before God. But Paul keeps saying in the book of Romans that the law actually made Israel and all of humanity's sin problem worse. It exacerbated the problem. And he's going to reiterate this truth in today's text. The law 
is like the light that gets turned on in the dungeon. You, you can smell the, the, the must, you know, the, the, the musty air. You can, you can feel it. And you can hear the rodents before the light goes on. But after you flick on the light, you can see, you can see better just how bad it had gotten down there as the cockroaches head for, head for cover. The law is a bright light that exposes sin. As, as Paul said back in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right after he said that the law can't justify you. That's not the road to justification, obedience to the law. And then right after that he says, the law, actually what the law does is it just makes you aware of your sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. But the law does more than that. It also stimulates sin. As Paul put it in Romans 5.20, the law entered so that the trespass might increase. A trespass in Romans and elsewhere, but particularly in Romans, is, is a trespass of God's law. A, a, a trespass of God's revealed moral law. Not just sin generally, but a specific trespass. God said this. He made his will, his, his law clear. You heard it, you saw it, and then you went beyond it. You violated it. That's what a trespass is. And the law came so that sin would increase, but specifically trespasses would increase. Showing sin for what it is. Now, in the first part of chapter 7, Paul said that the law exercises lordship over those who aren't saved. He said that saved people have been released from that lordship. They've been released from the law, it says. Verse 6 of chapter 7 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were held down, suppressed. That's what the law does to the flesh, to the unbeliever, to, to the sin nature. We might ask then, as many were, and Paul had probably dealt with this kind of question in his Q&As as he's going around to the synagogues and now the churches where, where there are Jews there and maybe even Christians who love the law, who had been going to synagogue, uh, Jew, uh, Gentile Christians that is, who love the law and they're, and, and they're wondering, is Paul down on the law? Does he see the law as an enemy? Is it, is it bad now or something? Well, no, but he knows, probably from experience, how some might reach this conclusion. So in verses 7 to 12, he defends the goodness of the law, and he explains its holy purpose. The law is an essential ingredient, a tool, an essential instrument in bringing a person into a saving knowledge of his or her own sin. Let me say that again. That the law is an, is an essential ingredient in the process, an essential instrument in God's hand in bringing a person into a saving knowledge of his or her sin. As we saw two weeks ago, what really makes verses 7 to 12 unique is Paul's reference to the commandment, not just any commandment, but the commandment, specifically the 10th commandment, do not covet. Paul's argument in this paragraph, today's text, specifically applies to this commandment, draws on this commandment and how it functioned 
in Paul's own life. This is autobiographical, remember, chapter 7. The Tenth Commandment, in particular, revealed Paul's sin to him. It, it, it aggravated or ramped up his sin, and then it ultimately it, it, it resulted in Paul's death, he says. So, today's paragraph begins with the kind of question we've come to expect. What shall we say then? That's kind of the introductory question. And then the real question is, is the law sin? So that's how we, that, that, that's how he sets up this passage, this paragraph, and he's going to answer that question. The law Paul's talking about here, remember, is the law of God as it's revealed in the Old Testament. Not the ceremonial law, but the moral law. The death and resurrection of Christ brought the, the, the ceremonial aspects of the law to their complete fulfillment. The ceremonial laws belong to the shadows and elements of the old covenant not to the substance of the new covenant in christ but the moral law as we might call it as kind of a summary term the moral law is timeless the righteous requirements of the moral law applied to all humans at all times in all places places going all the way back to the garden of eden before long before god gave moses any laws God's standards for holiness existed before Mount Sinai. At the same time, we need to affirm that the law of Moses is important. And it was the first time in history that God's moral law was inscripturated. It was made clear and explicit in this kind of full way. All right? The law in Scripture is God's personal revelation of his moral standards. We might expand that just when I say the law of Mo, the, the books of Moses, right? The books of Moses, the law of Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but the, but the first five bo books where God is revealing his will and his laws. And then especially in, when we get to the book of Exodus, where it starts getting very detailed and where we do find the Ten Commandments, that is where God is revealing in a very clear and explicit way, a moral law, we could say, that existed beforehand. The law in Scripture is God's personal revelation of His moral standards. And the New Testament also reveals God's law. It reiterates God's requirements, which means God's universal laws of morality show up in both Testaments. So, so when Paul asks, is the law sin, we, we might see the application of this in sort of concentric circles. In this context, he's talking specifically about the Tenth Commandment. Obviously, he's talking about the, the other, uh, other nine commandments as well and, the other, and how those commandments are applied for us in the Old Testament, but we could expand it to all of the, com the commandments. We could expand it to the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's own exhortations and his letters and the Word of God. It, it, it means, is the law sin? It means, is the Word of God sinning or sinful when it makes demands of sinners, when it makes specifically of unbelieving sinners, unregenerate 
sinners since they are unable to do what's being demanded of them, and it really only makes the situation worse. Is it therefore sinful? If, if God's holy standards stimulate sinful passions, if, if Scripture's commandments increase trespasses, then is the law sinful? And Paul emphatically denies this conclusion in verse 7. Get that out of your head, he says. May it never be. It's not the law that's sinful. It's human sinfulness that's sinful. The flesh that's sinful. When the law comes into contact with my sinfulness, my, my Adamic nature, what I inherited from the first Adam, when it comes into contact with that, it doesn't create sin out of whole cloth. It, it exposes and stirs up the deep wells of spiritual sewage that are already there. Well, the third heading in your outline is the heart of the paragraph. From the end of verse 7 through verse 11, Paul gives an extended explanation of why the law is not sinful. <coughs> he explains why the law is actually good, why it's still useful, and why it's as holy as ever. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go back and listen to, the, to my Matlock illustration. I won't repeat it today, but the point of it was to illustrate that Paul is functioning both as a defender, a, you know, a defense attorney for the law, and as a prosecutor of sin. The, the, real, the, the real guilty party, he's, he's getting his client, the law, off the hook, and he's making the case that the real culprit, the real criminal, the real, the real perpetrator is not the law, but our flesh and its sinful passions. The law is holy, we're not. And when the righteous law meets our unrighteousness, three things happen by the grace of God that prove both the goodness of the law and the sinfulness of sin. Paul touches, touches on three holy activities, we might call them, of the law and its extended in, in his extended explanation in verses 7 to 11. Sin uses the law in its reign of terror, but God uses it in his salvation project of saving a people. And the law does three things. It reveals sin, it ramps up sin, and it results in death. And we, we could say it this way, that the law serves as the base of operations for sin. But God always orchestrates everything, including the law's use of uh, the sin, uh, yeah, the, the sin's use of the law. So it ultimately serves his purposes. And so while it's true that sin's use of the law reveals sin, ramps up sin, results in death, God uses this whole process to bring his chosen ones to a saving knowledge of their sin, which leads them to a saving knowledge of their Savior. So let's briefly look at the first point, which we covered last week. We never got out of verse 7. So we'll briefly look at the first one and then get through the rest of the text. So first, the law reveals sin. Nevertheless, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. Indeed, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. 
people don't naturally think of themselves as sinners. We don't, even those of us who know we're sinners, don't think about it as often as we ought. We're not in touch with reality in this respect. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So from God's perspective, all inclinations of the thoughts of our hearts naturally are evil all the time. But, but who actually believes that? about himself? Who, who actually believes that they're capable of that kind of consistency in evil? We tend to see ourselves as flawed, but basically good, or we probably are, compare ourselves to others in that thought process, focusing on those who are below us. Earlier, Paul said in Romans 3, there is none righteous not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. It's, you know, he needs, he's hammering that point home, isn't he? But no one believes this about himself truly, and no one can even begin to believe this about himself unless God reveals it to him or to her. And the way God reveals this to people, to you, to anyone to whom he reveals it to, is through his law, his revealed standard for holiness. The law is like an MRI. <clears throat> an MRI produces a, a, a detailed three-dimensional kind of image or images of a person's physical anatomy, right? It shows, it gets below the surface, and it shows where the diseases are in a person's body. The law similarly produces a detailed three-dimensional image, if you will, of our spiritual anatomy. It reveals all the diseases in your heart. Or we could say the law is like a magnifying glass that, that you know, when it, it hovers over our sin and makes all of its ugliness bigger and, and more visible, easier to spot. It's not that it was not there. The law doesn't create new sins. It magnifies the sinful passions that are already there. We might say it creates new opportunities, and sin does increase, but it's got something to work with, right? It's got something to work with. The, the law also functions like a mirror. This is a classic illustration. A mirror shows us our true physical condition. It reveals all the, the dirt and the, and the defects on the face. It can't clean your face, but it can reveal where, the, where, the, where it's soiled. Likewise, the law shows us our true spiritual condition, revealing the stains of sin on your soul. So the law plays a vital role in bringing unbelievers into a saving knowledge of sin 
and the Savior. Saving knowledge of sin is saving knowledge of the Savior. You can't know the Savior of sinners until you know the sin that he needs to save you from, that the Savior needs to save you from. And you can't see your sin for what it is apart from God's law. The law also plays a, a critical role in making a Christian more like the Savior. So it's not just, it, it's not just a role, it doesn't just play a role in conversion or pre-evangelism, something like that. It, it also is God's instrument, his sledgehammer, remember from two weeks ago, or jackhammer, or dynamite even, for making us more like Jesus, for breaking up our stony hearts and making it softer and more malleable. And so it's not just an instrument in bringing people to Christ, it's also an instrument in making God's people more like Christ. Now, it can't, it can't accomplish it in itself. It, it, it's, it doesn't have the power to do it in itself. Notice I said in God's hand. It's accompanied by God's grace, by the Spirit of God. So, so when you meditate on God's Word, on His, especially when you come to a place in the, in the Scriptures where, where God is requiring something, God is prohibiting something, God is exhorting you to do something, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you're meditating on, really, you're meditating on the holy character of Jesus in a way, right? Who obeyed every aspect of God's moral law perfectly. At the same time, when you meditate on God's law, it reveals to you, maybe even that same moment, where your life where your conduct, your character, your desires, your speech, your actions fall short of Christ's righteousness, of his holiness. It exposes all the idols in your heart that you cherish more than God. So as you read God's word in your devotional time, ask the Spirit to use the law to shine a spotlight on all those places where you fall short of God's glory. Often we go to Scripture looking for, for comfort, which it does provide, maybe for inspiration or other things. But don't forget to go to Scripture looking to be convicted, looking for and asking God to show you things that you don't see, your blind spots. Ask God to expose your sinful desires, your perverse cravings, your invisible spiritual diseases, the dirt and defects on your soul, the, co the covetous longing in your heart. And then repent of those sins by God's help, by God's grace, and move closer to God, move further from sin and closer to God as the Spirit makes you more like the Son. But the law doesn't just reveal sin. Second holy activity of the law is that it ramps up sin. Try to keep with my alliteration there. It aggravates the sin that's in us. Verse 8 says, And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all manner of covetousness. 
Did you notice there how, how Paul personifies sin? He's going to do this elsewhere, even in this chapter. Sin, sin it's like sin is, has a will of its own. It's, it's planning, it's thinking, it's strategizing, and it seizes this opportunity through the law. It's, so sin is opportunistic. It, it uses the law as its base of operations. One, one commentator said that, the, that sin is, is sort of parasitic in this way. It uses something else's power or strength or energy um, to do something it, it can't fully do on its own. So it attaches itself to the law. And, and, it, and it uses the law, I like, I like to think of it as a, as a base of operations. And, and through the law, it wages war activating all manner of covetousness in our hearts. Now, don't hear me saying that we're passive in this. Like, oh, you know, we're poor us. We're the victims here. No, but the metaphor that Paul is, is using here is one of sin attacking and reigning and, and strategizing and using the law in its war against us. And elsewhere, Paul says the power of sin is what? You may remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the power of sin is the law. That's, that's a, a good way of thinking about all of this. It's the same theological principle. And so how does this work, though, on the ground? Well, Augustine tells a story about his life that illustrates this perfectly. He, he describes how it worked out for him in a, in a fairly well-known incident uh, with the pear tree. Maybe some of you know about this, this story, if you've read the, his confessions. Augustine says, quote, There was a pear tree near our vineyard, laden with fruit, loaded up with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon them ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that made my wretched soul covet, for I had plenty better at home. So he had his own vineyard with better pears. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. So, clearly, Augustine in this moment knew that it wasn't about the pear because there was an orchard at, at, on his property, he says, with even better pears. And as he thought about this, he realized that his sinful nature is so perverse that it finds joy in doing wrong simply for the sake of doing wrong. Now, we, the, the way this illustration might 
break down or, or not apply to all situations is we have some level of desire to sin oftentimes before the commandment comes, right? Now, Augustine knew that that wasn't really at play here because like he said, I, there, was, there were pear trees at home. He couldn't, he couldn't make it about the pear. Oftentimes we have this, I'll call it superficial desire that is driving us. But when the commandment comes, it turns that desire into an uncontrollable beast. And that's what's happening here. Whatever desire he may have had for this pair, the problem was that the, when the commandment came, when he knew it was forbidden, when he thought about how he shouldn't do it, a desire arose and it was an uncontrollable beast inside of him. And Paul's insight in verse 8 is the key to understanding the anatomy of sin. Here's what you need to know about every sin that you commit. Every sin has the same underlying motive at bottom. There may be all kinds of different desires. You know, we'll call it on the surface. I don't, they're not just on the surface, but they're just not as deep as the other one that I'm getting ready to talk about. When you lie or explode in anger or lust or take revenge or gossip or, or seek your own interests above others, there's always a, a kind of super motive. Maybe you're greedy or resentful or envious or attracted to some particular sin or experience. But underneath all of that, there's a, there's a foundational motive, a basic desire to play God, to be God. Augustine believed that this was what drove him to steal the pairs. A couple chapters later, he says it explicitly. He wanted to experience, he said, the freedom and especially the power of God. He wanted God's prerogative. Now, that's not to say he was actually imitating God, but it was a sinful sort of imitation of God. But that's what he was after. Each of us is born with a profound desire to be in charge of our lives, maybe the world. We crave control and sovereignty and freedom from loss. We want to be autonomous. We don't want others telling us what to do, not even God. His law, you see, infringes on our sovereignty on our freedom, which is why we're at war with it by nature. The commandments of God remind us that we're not God. We don't get to make the rules. And sin hates this reminder. Sin hates that reminder. Sin hates that reality. It rebels against that reality most of all. Sin wants to be God. Satan's very first temptation presented Eve with an opportunity to be godlike, to be like God. You, you will not surely die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be godlike. The essence of the first sin was a craving to be like God, to sit on his throne. 
And this is the essence of every sin after it as well. It's in the DNA of sin. What's this mean then? It means that your deepest problem isn't that you can't control your tongue or your anger or your eyes or any of the other sinful passions of the flesh. Your problem is that you long to sit on God's throne and you don't want anybody to tell you what to do. You covet God's sovereignty, God's prerogatives. The devil's lie is that if you steal these pears, if you eat this forbidden fruit, if you set this vile image before your eyes, if you get out from underneath the, the thumb of your authorities, if you slay this person physically or with your words, then you will finally, finally experience that godlike power and freedom and control, and you'll finally be satisfied. Your deepest longings will be fulfilled. That's the lie. It, it never works out that way, and yet we continue to believe the lie, don't we? He tells the same lie in different forms every time, and we keep falling for it. So since that's the fundamental problem, let's think about the fundamental solution. It isn't to do, in, in terms of our response, in terms of our obligation, our responsibility. It isn't to do battle with specific besetting sins that are on the surface and to focus there and to strategize there. You, you won't get anywhere trying to defeat what I'm calling for lack of a better term, your surface-level sinful desires until you do real battle with your underlying craving to cast off all restraints, all rules, all restrictions, all requirements, and to be in charge, to be the one calling the shots. The, that idol is the one that rules and empowers and inspires all the other idols. The idol of all idols is the self-seeking ambition to be godlike in the wrong kind of way, to imitate God sinfully. We naturally want God's glory for ourselves. That's a lot of what's going on here. We want the praise that is due God. We want the power that belongs to God. We want all of God's prerogative, all of his freedom. When the 10th commandment convicts a person of his covetous desire to sit on God's throne, it puts that person to death, Paul says. That's the end goal here. In addition to revealing sin and ramping up sin, the law results in death, Paul says. Look at verses 8 to 11, starting in the second half of verse 8. For sin apart from the law is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died, and I found that the commandment which was meant to bring life resulted in my death. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, sin killed me. 
Paul says a lot of things here that maybe are a little confusing that we have to sort out. Like, what, what's he mean that the law, the commandment, was meant to bring life? Well, that God's, God gave commandments before sin, and those commandments were designed to be obeyed, right? Can we, we can start there. Adam, and, Adam was supposed to obey. Eve was supposed to obey. And had they obeyed, it would have taken them to new heights, to new experiences of eternal life and communion with God. And part, so part of what Paul is saying here is that that was, that's the design of the law, and God's law, his requirements are always good. It's just that when sin is there, the law is unable to do that, and we are unable to fulfill the law. And when Paul says in verse 8 that sin is dead apart from the law, what's, what's he mean there? Well, he's speaking experientially. He's not saying there's no sin, that, that sin is absent or even inactive in some way apart from the law. What do you mean? Because remember, Romans, Paul's already said more than once that those without the law will be judged apart from the law. There's still a judgment awaiting sin and sinners, even if they've never heard of the law. What he means is that our, our, our sense of our own wretchedness, our knowledge of our radical wickedness, doesn't spring to life in us until we know what God requires, until we know his law. Paul says in verse 9 that he was once alive apart from the law. He's not saying he was once a, you know, a believer or regenerate you know, in his old life or something like that, and then he became unregenerate. He, what he's saying is there was a time in his life before, sometime, we don't know when, before he was converted to Christ, when the law hadn't quite done its work of killing Paul and springing sin to life. We don't know if Paul's thinking of a, of a certain day when this occurred to him or, or some kind of process, probably a process. And, and Paul's not saying he was actually alive spiritually at that moment either or, or, or before. He, what he's saying is he felt alive in some way. We could say he felt spiritually alive. We know from what he says in Philippians 3 that he felt very spiritually alive at certain moments and thought he was righteous and a good law keeper. But that was only because the law had not yet put him to death. It had not yet brought him to the end of himself. It had not yet revealed to Paul the depths of his sin problem. It had not yet shown him his wretchedness, and God's condemnation of his wretchedness and the eternal death that his sin deserved. So at some point, we don't know when, before Paul became a Christian, the law, we can say, came home to Paul. At, at some point, the, ten, the Tenth Commandment exposed the sin in a particular kind of way that was running deep in Paul's heart. At some point, Paul went from thinking that he was spiritually alive, righteous, to knowing that he was hopeless, spiritually dead, a lawbreaker, as the Tenth Commandment exposed the sin 
in his heart. You can't be a, you can't be a Christian you, without experiencing this death that Paul describes in verses 8 to 11. To die in this sense means to realize that you're a moral failure. In a sense, it's, it's, a, it's, it's to recognize that you're dead. Right? It's to recognize that your sinfulness is sweeping and deep-seated and to know that you have no ability to change it. You have no resources within yourself to save yourself from your situation. The death that Paul's speaking of here is one that every Christian has experienced and should continue to experience in some sense. Every Christian should keep dying this death throughout his entire life. It's, it's really a death to self, a death to self-sufficiency, a death to self-righteousness. And the more you die, the more you will believe the conclusion that Paul himself came to in verse 12. Therefore, remember the question, is the law sin? And so he's, he's made his argument, and here's his conclusion. Ergo, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. All of God's law is holy, and the 10th commandment in particular is holy and righteous and good. This is a good thing that it does or that God does through it. It's holy and righteous and good because God uses it to expose your sin, fellow believer, to provoke your sin. And through this process to bring you to the end of yourself, to kill you and all your strivings and your dependence on that. You're taking pride in that. Your arrogance about that, self-righteousness and judgment of others because of that. It, it, it brings you to the end of yourself. You die. These three holy activities of the law are how God breaks up the hardness of your hearts, of our hearts, the hard ground of our hearts. And, it, and again, it doesn't stop when we're converted. The, the, the law highlights our sin and it aggravates our sin and it regularly puts us to death. And this happens to the Christian over and over and over again. It's, and as you know, if you're a Christian and you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know it's a humbling process. It, it's, it's one that's... You know, when you're maybe at the tail end of one of those cycles, it's hard to pray for God to do that again right now. You know? but, but you know you should because it's good. And if you're, if you're a Christian, you, you experience it repeatedly. The, the death always seems to happen not long after you've gotten comfortable and complacent in your spiritual progress. You know, you're, you're pretty good with the status quo. You're feeling alive. You're feeling holy and righteous. Your walk with the Lord really seems to be humming along. Again, especially if you compare yourself to the right people, or at least your perception of others. And maybe tweak your self-perception just a little bit, not too much. And then God shines a spotlight, right? You know, and that, you know, you're, 
it's like right across the, uh, the head or something. God shines a spotlight on one of the nasty, overgrown rodents in the dungeon of your heart. You know, it might happen in a, in a conversation with, with a loved one where you, you just sinned worse than you thought possible, right? Or when somebody points out something. And, and you see that this, there's this rodent that you never noticed before. Even, even when the light was on, you couldn't see it. You knew it was there. It was, you, know, you could hear it probably or smell it, even if you tried to ignore it. When God brings this to your attention, it, it feels like death. And it is a sort of death because you're forced to come to the realization yet again that you're not nearly as holy as you thought. That's Paul's experience. You know, go read Philippians 3, where he talks about how holy he thought he was as a Pharisee, and then come back to Romans 7, as we're walking through it these weeks, and see the difference between a man who for years had convinced himself that he was alive, but then God's law killed him. And you realize you're not as holy as you thought. You realize you're not as interested in God's glory as you imagined you were. It's really not all about his glory after all. You're not nearly the law keeper that you thought you were. In fact, you're a bigger hypocrite than you realized. You still want to be free from God's demands. There's, there's more coveting and more idols in, you, in your heart than you thought could even fit there. See, the Christian life is a continuous cycle of coming to a deeper knowledge of your sinfulness and then repenting of new sins. Not, not new sins that you haven't, new sins that you're newly aware of, that is. Old sins that you're newly aware of, let's put it that way. New repentance of old sins. Over and over again, until you die or until the Lord returns, you come to a deeper knowledge of your sinfulness and then you repent of sins anew. It's a cycle of death and resurrection, right? That's the cycle. We could just call it death and resurrection for short. It's how the Spirit brings you from one degree of glory to another. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we're being brought from glory to glory. That's, that's the Spirit's work in us. But that never happens apart from, from pain, from death. It's not an easy process, not an easy road to walk or to be brought through. So welcome this cycle. Invite it. After all, you're already forgiven of all the sins that God is bringing to light in your, in, in your life, in your heart. There's, there's no need to feel threatened. No need to get defensive when somebody does point it out or when something comes to light. No need to try to hide it from others. You know, to try to contain it. Appearances. You certainly can't hide it from God. So welcome the cycle of death and resurrection. 
the cycle of new knowledge of sin and new repentance of sin. Invite the Spirit to use the sledgehammer of God's law to chip away at your sin and to conform you more and more into the image of your Savior. Let's pray and ask for, God's, ask for God to do this in us. Oh Lord, we love your commandments and we know it's right for you to require holiness from us. And we ask you to accomplish in us what you have commanded. We confess that we fall short and that we need your spirit to fulfill God's law in us, to work in us, and to cause us to will God's will, your will. And so we ask you to do that for your glory, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.